Um, I've had a rough week. I'm just going gonna, gonna to give you full disclosure just in case I go mad while I'm up here. Um, uh, our air conditioning died in the house. Um, and if you know anything about Tracy and I, we don't like hot very much. So that's been fun. And then I got the worst case of poison ivy I've ever had in my life. And I'm on copious amounts of steroids right now. So if a car happens to fall on you out in the parking lot, just have somebody come in and get me. And I'll just hoist that off and we'll be, we'll be good. Uh, I, I, steroids, uh, I've only been on this one before, one time when I had poison ivy before, and um, I don't sleep well. So um, with all that being said, Acts chapter 10. Now, you may, just, let's just get something out of the, out of the way quickly here. Um, you may um, or may not look at this passage uh, today and wonder why we're stopping at verse 23. And that's a good question. That's a good thing to raise. I think when I laid this out, Pastor Aaron is preaching next week. My family's going on vacation this week. Uh, Pastor Aaron is preaching next week, and so he's picking it up where I'm leaving off. And he asked me, why are you stopping there? I think right in the middle of a verse even. And um, it's because, because today we're going to hear about the vision, but then next week we're going to hear what it means. So I'm not really going to focus a whole lot on the vision today because I didn't want us, I didn't want what I'm about to tell you to escape. In other words, if we just got to the vision and then we got to the meaning of the vision, I think we would miss some important concepts and important facts about this passage. As I stated last week, uh, as Peter went and healed a paralyzed person in Acts, end of Acts chapter 9, and then he raised uh, Tabitha from the dead in Acts chapter 9, um, you know, I made the point that Peter is about to do something big. He's about to be part of the process that God is using to open the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. The gospel has gone to the Jews. It's still going to the Jews at this stage in Acts chapter 10. It's, it, it's gone to the Jews. It's going to the um, Samaritans, you know, the kind of the Jewish. They got some Jewish blood and some non-Jewish blood. And we're, we're getting ready here for the, the gospel to go to the Gentiles. And, and I want us to pay attention today to the two people in this story. And, and I just picked a random picture of two guys. Because uh, I think that we have to understand that these two men, Cornelius and Peter, are human beings just like you and me. And that is, you know, we read the Bible sometimes and it escapes us. or it, it, We think that... Um, Whatever God did with Peter, whatever God did with Cornelius, whatever God does with all these people, um, that he can't do such things in my life. He can't use me for such, such things. And I, I think you're wrong. And I, and, I, and I think I'm wrong to the degree that I think that. There are some very interesting characteristics of these two men that the Bible presents to us that we need to pay some attention to and then think about our lives in relationship to the way that these two men are living. In some way, these, these two men couldn't be further apart. Uh, Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He's part of the Roman Empire. The Jews, uh, can I tell you, they don't have a favorable opinion of the Roman Empire. They are invaders, foreign invaders who are occupying their, their country. And to the Jews, it's, this is the promised land we're talking about, right? This is God's promised land, the, God, the land that God promised to, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, you know. This is their promise, and you've got this Roman Empire, and so they're offended 
by the occupation of the Romans, right? You got this guy who couldn't be more different. He's from the Italian cohort, right? Cornelius. And then you got Peter. Peter's an apostle. I mean, he was close with, he was tight with, you know, God in the flesh. He was tight with Jesus the Christ. And um, he, he carried out his earthly, he was there in the early days. He carried out his earthly ministry with Jesus. You know, he had some rocky stuff there. He denied Jesus three times. He was restored by Jesus and all this kind of stuff. But now he is on a mission. You know, he is on a mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. So in one sense, these two guys could not be farther apart. But at the same time, they do have something in common, something very important that I think is germane to this story. They both fear God. I'm going to say, I'm about to use an illustration, and I fear that if, if you don't hear me properly, you'll think that I'm getting political, and I'm not. I'm not getting political at all. I'm using this as an illustration. So wipe everything you know about the news out of, the, out of your minds, everything that's in the, in the media and all that kind of stuff for just a minute. And let's do a thought experiment together before we dive in. Um, there's a lot of talk in, the, in our culture about um, people who are American citizens and people who are illegal immigrants. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, the legality of these things cannot be more clear. A citizen is someone who is here, and they've either been born here or they, you know, they have gone through the process to achieve U.S. citizenship and they are legally, everything's cool there. They're bona fide. <laughs> They're U.S. citizens, right? Or they've got permission to work here, permission to live here, granted by the government. And then you've got this other category of folks over here who perhaps have snuck into the country or, you know, um, somehow got in here and, and are, not, are not legal. And um, now, with that being said, with that being said, can we agree, again, forget about politics, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy who believes in the law of the land, and, and I think that you know, if you're in this country, you need to be here legally, and if I came across somebody who was here illegally that was attending our church, I would exhort them to go get in and, and go through the process, right? But forget about all that for a second. Can we agree on this, that there are some people who have U.S citizenship, who are here legally, who really don't hold to or adhere to the core values of the United States. And when by, by the core values of the United States, I'm talking about we would like the government to be small and kind of leave us alone, and we'd like to take responsibility for our own lives and, and work hard and provide for our families and grow our families and build communities that are good and healthy and all these kinds of things and, and you know, take care of one another, you know, you know, have community with each other. That's kind of like we would have. We don't want authoritarianism to take hold here. We don't want, you know, people in Washington, D.C. to be micromanaging all of our lives. Can we agree that there are people that are citizens that have that kind of authoritarian bent to them? I think that's true, right? Can we also agree that there are some illegal immigrants who really want to experience the American dream? who really want to be left alone to do their work and to, to, to build their family and to build a life here. And, okay. So with that being said, that, again, this is just a thought experiment. Take that thinking and apply that to Cornelius and Peter. Peter is, Peter is a Jew. Peter is, he's all of the scholars, the Old Testament, it all points to the Jews as being God's promised people, God's covenant people, uh, you know, 
the synagogues. Now, Peter's, he's a little bit on the outs right now, right? Because he's a follower of Jesus Christ. But, but by his birth, by his heritage and where he's living, he's a Jew. He's official. And you've got Cornelius over here who's a Gentile Roman centurion. But he loves God. And, and, and we're going to see in the text, he doesn't, just, he doesn't just love God with his mouth. He doesn't just mouth the words, I love God. He doesn't just like put up a banner or, you know, put a bumper sticker on his horse, <laughs> you know. I, that wouldn't be a bumper sticker, that would be a rear end sticker, right? He doesn't put a sticker on his horse, you know, I love God, you know, honk if you love him, you know, whatever. Nay, nay if you love him. He, he's, he's built a reputation as a man of prayer, as a man of generous giving. And, I would, and I'll get into more of this in a minute. Um, he's, he's built a reputation even among the Jews. These are the two men that God is going to use to begin to open that door to the Gentiles. You don't think your testimony, you don't think your life is important, you don't think that your walk with the Lord is critical to what God can do with you? It is. It is. So let's get into it. And let's look at this. I, I just think that before we get into the vision, we're going to get into the vision today, but before we get into it, it's interpretation and that door to the Gentiles swinging wide open so that they could be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Before we get into all that, let's just talk about the two guys that God's going to use. Who does God use to open the way? This is a big question. Who, is the, who does God use to open the way for the good news to all people? We've seen Jew, we've seen Samaritan, kind of the Jewish half-breed kind of person, and now we're seeing the gospel is about to be, the door to salvation is about to be open to all people. So the first person is a Gentile. This is, this is Cornelius. We, see, we read about him in verses 1 through 8 and also in verse 22. Let's just talk a little bit about him. We've already read the text. I'm not going to read it again. He was a man of position, right? It tells us his title. He was a centurion. He was, we even know his detachment, you know, I guess this would be in the military, you know, his division or his, you know, his platoon or whatever. Um, he was part of the Italian cohort. What do you know about Italy? Italy is the home of what city that this empire is named after? Rome, right? He is from, he is from the original. He's from back, you know, he's, his detachment is the Italian cohort, right? And he's living in Caesarea. So he's a man of position. And it's just a fact of life. Can we, be, can we just be honest with each other here for a minute? It's just a fact of life that people, and I would say this is particularly true among men, but I know some women like this too, that men tend to identify themselves by their profession. Would you, is that fair enough? We meet each other, we say, uh, hi, I'm Scott. Oh, hi, I'm Leroy. Now, what do you do, Leroy? And there you go. There's the beginning of the conversation. You know. And yet, there's something about Cornelius that's, that's different. He seems to have prioritized something in his life above his position as a, as a centurion. We're going to get into that. He's a man of position. He's also a man of power. Centurions, as the name implies, have authority over about 100 men. You know, and I assume that, like anything in real life, it's not exactly 100 men. Maybe it is, but I'm sure that number fluctuates up and down depending on the needs and the, 
and people coming in and out, you know, whatever. But he's got authority over people. He's a centurion. He has to, so among his ranks, he's got to deal with problems. Uh, he's got to, you know, soldiers not getting along. He's got to discipline soldiers that are lax in their duty. He's got to take care of logistics because anybody knows that if you're going to run an operation like this, you, you've got to not only have your soldiers, but you've got to provide for their food, their clothing, their housing. You know, you've got to pay them. Uh, these were, he, so he had to tend to all these matters. He probably had folks under him to help, help him take care of that. He had to stay aware of security issues in the region that he was operating in. You know, if there's a big thing, if there's a big event coming up, he's probably got to be mindful of who's coming into town, what's going on, and, and what are the possible scenarios that need to be thought through. In his region that he was overseeing, he probably also had the power to enforce the laws and the edicts of the empire, right? And can we say, can we just be, can we just be honest today? and say that not everybody who has authority exercises it well. Is that true? I think we see that a lot in our world today. We see people that, that tend to get power and it goes to their head. We, see, teams, we seem to say, see people that get power and their number one chief priority seems to be to retain or expand that power. But I think, as, I think that it's clear in the text, and we're going to see it not just in this section, but in verse 22 as well. Well, I, that's what I put in the, in the notes. That Cornelius seems to be a man who is exercising his authority well, not to enrich himself or to punish those who personally offend him or to speak ill of him, right? But I'm guessing, I'm guessing this is my speculation that the reason that he was able to do what he did is because he was clear about his expectation, both to his troops, both to his, the people under him and the people in the region where he served. Like, we're all going to get along fine if we just, this is, what the, this is what the rules of the empire, I am charged to enforce them. So, hey, as long as we, I'm a reasonable man, but as long as we stay within these boundaries, everything's going to be okay. So he's probably very clear about his expectations. He's fair, he's reasonably minded, open, and humble right? And humble. Can we just like take a step back here for a minute and just reflect on how refreshing it is when you meet someone who has a, power, a position of power who exercises it that way? We've got some people like that in our midst here, in our body, and it's refreshing. And how oppressive it is when you have somebody who's in a position of power who consistently mishandles it. He's a God-fearing man. The text tells us that, right? And again, I just want to emphasize this. He's not a God-fearing man in, by his words or by the, the t-shirt that he wears, so to speak, whatever the garb is from him. But he's a man who has built a reputation based on it being a man of prayer and being a man of almsgiving, right? And, uh, and then later on, we'll learn about it. he's got a reputation with all the Jews even. So he's a God-fearing man, and that's reflected in his actions. Let me say that again. It's not just what he says, it's what he does. That's key. Now, there's probably a lot of reasons that he did not convert to Judaism. That's kind of a God-fearing person is kind of a technical term for somebody who 
worships the God of Israel, believes in the God of Israel, practices what the Word of God says according to the God of Israel, but hasn't gone through the process of being, becoming Jew, becoming a Jew or being circumcised or anything like that. There's probably reasons for that, uh, some of which may have to do with his duty, his centurion status, and so on. But the Bible describes him, God's Word describes him as a God-fearing man. He's a generous man. He, he was a man who could not stand to see the people under his watch suffer, so he gave alms, and it says he gave generously. And alms is, that word in English means very similar to the word in Greek. The word alms means to give money and food to people who are in poverty. And the Greek word carries a specific undertone of mercy. So, again, I'm hoping that I'm painting a good picture here of what Cornelius is like, just according to the word of God, right? He's a generous man. It says he's a man of prayer. He's a man of prayer. In fact, he was, he was operating in prayer when this vision came. Now, again, going into a bit of a speculation mode here, go back to my illustration of the illegal immigrant and the bona fide American citizen. The, the illegal immigrant uh, has fallen in love with the idea of America, the United States. The, the illegal immigrant um, is beginning to make a life here and, and is thriving, working hard, providing for their family, doing well. What does that immigrant want more than anything else? I'm guessing that that immigrant wants to be a citizen, to be official, to be bona fide. And here you have Cornelius, and I'm guessing, I'm imagining, that besides lifting up to God all of the, the difficulties that he's facing in managing his soldiers and managing his particular little corner of the empire that he's overseeing, he's also saying to God, how can I be right with you? Like, how can I be official? I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. What is your attitude towards me, God? Am I on the inside? Am I on the outside? Am I going to be with you when I'm gone, when, when this life is over, or, or am I going to be rejected because of my Gentile status? I don't know. These are just my musings as I think about what this man must have been praying about, but it says that he was dedicated to it. it was, he was a man of prayer. He was a man, interestingly, recognized by God. Look at verse 4. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. I, I want you just to notice, just once again, I'm just going to beat this a little bit like a dead horse. Um, it's not that you're... The things that you say about me, the things that you think about me, have risen as a memorial before God. It's his actions that God is taking note of. His his actions are what is drawing God's attention to him. I don't believe at all that salvation is by works, but I do believe that works are a product, are the fruit of salvation. And so this man who loves God is letting that belief guide what he does with his hands and feet, his resources, and his leadership each and every day. And God is recognizing him for it. He's also a man of reputation. Fast forward back, uh, down to verse 22. Down to verse 22, this is what it says. This is when the, um, the delegation, three, the three men, come to Peter's house. And they said, 
uh, verse 22, and they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you and to come to this house and to hear what you have to say. That is the reputation that Cornelius has built. Now, can, again, can we just kind of take a step back and, and understand the, 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 the lay of the land on the ground here? You've got the Roman Empire that's the foreign occupier of the land of Israel. They don't like it. But within the context of that bad situation, here's a man who's a representative of the Roman Empire who's governing us, you know, he's, he's managing, doing his leadership thing in that region and has managed to build for himself a reputation, the text says, a good reputation to the whole Jewish empire, empire, the whole Jewish nation. How can that be? Cornelius is quite a man, right? Nobody likes to be pulled over by a police officer. I don't, I don't like to be pulled over by a police officer. Uh, when I moved to Delaware, I think I've told this story many times, but um, I had to learn how to transition from country driving to city driving. And uh, I think I got pulled over once before I even got the job because I had a lead foot from living in the country. Um, but nobody likes to be pulled over by a police officer, but I think that we all appreciate when we're pulled over by a police officer who is fair, who's kind, who, you know, hey, you were going a little too fast. Did you, you know how fast you were going? And, and you admit how fast you were going and say, okay, well, you know, stop it and uh, here's a warning or stop it and here's a ticket. Um, I think we appreciate that. Somebody who carries out their duty kindly, considerately, whatever. Nobody likes to appear before a judge in court but we appreciate it when the judge acts fairly, consistently, and all these things. And I'm, I'm guessing that's the reputation that Cornelius had built. And I just want to pause here and say, I kind of want to dwell on this for just a minute. Um, this is one of the things that I think that we don't think as much about as Christians as we should. We build a reputation over time in this community. We do. And I think that we need to be mindful of that, especially in the things that we say, we post online, you know, uh, things like that. And you have, you've, you've really got to ask yourself the question, are you, by the actions that you're taking, by the interactions that you're having at, at, in public places, in, 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 in the market, uh, online, is, are your interactions presenting that you love God and that you want to draw others into a relationship with him, or are you leading with, you're wrong, I'm right, and you better shut up? So, um, again, I just invite you to look at the, the needle that Cornelius threaded. He's a Roman centurion living in the land of Samaria. They hate the Romans. The Jews hate the Romans. They don't like them being there. But this man, this man has built a good reputation in the whole nation of Israel. A reputation is a very powerful thing, and it, it takes time to build one, and it doesn't take long to tear one down. 
funny story. Uh, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but every student at Delaware Christian School, I, I'm talking about this in the summer, so it's less relevant. I'll get in less trouble. Um, everybody, every student at Delaware Christian School loves the dress code, don't they? They love it. They love, yeah, look, I got, I got fist pump. They love the dress code. No, they hate it. They hate the dress code, most of them. And, um, and I get it. I understand. You know, nobody wants to be told what to wear every day unless you're like Einstein and you just don't want to think about that stuff. But if you have a student, let's call him Bob, and Bob comes to school every day for 100 days in a row and he's in dress code. And on the 101st day, Bob comes to school and he was up late last night studying for the chemistry exam and he didn't turn on the light in his bedroom. He grabbed the first polo shirt off the floor, and instead of being one of the official DCS colors, it was like, I don't know, coral. And he's out of dress code. He gets to school, and he, oh, he looks down, and I'm out of dress code, because teenagers don't apparently look in the mirror before they come to school. And uh, he comes to school in the wrong polo shirt, and, you know, he gets dinged for it. But because Bob has built a reputation of coming to school in dress code, he just, hey, what happened? Oh, I, I stayed up late, and then I grabbed a shirt, and here it is, and I for, my bad. He's probably going to get a, lot of, a little bit of grace, right? Going to get a little bit of, a little bit of uh, you know, mercy. And then over here, you got Sally, and Sally comes to school every other day out of dress code. And it's beginning, the hard attitude that, that Sally's beginning to exhibit is that Sally is really trying to buck the system. She's trying to tear down the institution and do whatever she can to subvert the system. And, um, and she comes to, to school and she gets, she's out of, she wears the same color coral shirt and she gets a detention. And people cry out, unfair, unfair. And um, you can cry that. I think, I think the reality of the situation is we can cry that all we want, but uh, I think we have to understand that in that particular case, you're going to get more, you're going to get way further down the road if you've built Bob's reputation than if you're going to get Sally's reputation. And I would argue that we're going to get way further in our witness for Jesus Christ in this community if we build for ourselves a, 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 um, a reputation of love and kindness and leading with that. And as a commercial, I'm going to be sharing more about that tonight before we take the Lord's table. And uh, I would invite you to, to make that a priority to come tonight, 6 o'clock, here at the church, and we'll talk more about that. Not reputation, but, but leading with love. Okay, Cornelius built a good reputation. He was a man who was open to God's leading. Let's not skate past the fact that Cornelius received this vision from the angel and can we just say, it's not an automatic deal that when that vision is over and that, and that vision goes away, that, that Cornelius is going to do anything about it. He may say, man, whew, that was some strong pizza I had last night before I went to sleep, right? Um, no, he, he practiced obedience. He heard what God's messenger had said to him, and then he acted on it. He took three guys, he sent them to Joppa to go inquire about Peter, just as the Lord had instructed him. Oh, Christians, how much more better off would we be? How much more powerful would our testimony be if we were simply people who listened to the voice of God and then did it? And then finally, he was a forbidden man to the Jews. He was a forbidden man to the Jews. Peter's going to talk about this later in the chapter, about how it's unlawful for Peter to enter into the home 
of a Jewish, of a Gentile. He's, it's unlawful, according to the Old Testament Jewish law, for him to go into that home. And so there's a rift that these two men, who are both God-fearing men, one of them is official, one of them is bona fide, that's Peter, and one is a Gentile who's a God-fearing man, and that's Cornelius. Well, who's the other character? That's Peter. That's Peter, right? He's a Jew. He's not just a Jew. He's an apostle. He's a sent one by God's Son. And let me just dwell on that for a quick second. In the world of apostles, because you know we're living in a time right now where other churches will call some of their officers apostles. I don't know if you knew that or not, but um, there are some churches out there today who call themselves Christian churches who will say, uh, so-and-so is an apostle. My, uh, not to spend too much time on this, I think there's 12 apostles of the Lamb. In the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it talks about the, the apostles of the Lamb, meaning they're the, the ones that were sent by Jesus himself. And I consider those to be the 12 disciples minus Judas plus Paul. In the book of Revelation, it talks about the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb being written on the foundation of the New Jerusalem, and I think that those are the names that are going to be there. Now, there are other people in the Bible that are referred to as apostles too, like Barnabas. But I, I would consider Barnabas, Barnabas wasn't sent by Jesus himself. He was sent by the church of Antioch, okay? And so Barnabas is an apostle. He's sent by the church in Antioch. I think the closest approximation we have to that today would be missionaries. Somebody who is part of this church, they're in this church, and we send them like Beth Ann Tobin to Guatemala, right? She is sent by Delaware Bible Church and other supporting churches and individuals to Guatemala. Uh, we don't call her an apostle. We call her a missionary, but um, I think that we just do that for clarity's sake, right? So he's a sent one. He's not just a Jew. He's He's, a, he's sent by Jesus himself. He's a keeper of the law, right? This vision happens. We're going to read about that in a second. This vision happens, and, and it says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And on this sheet are all kinds of animals, some of them unclean. And Peter says, No, Lord. Though, though Jerusalem is down in the south of Israel, and I grew up up in Galilee, up in the north, of, and it was a, a poor fisherman, even I have never eaten anything unclean or common. He was a keeper of the law, right? He was also a man open to God's leading, right? God is going to appear to him as well and tell him some things in this vision, and he's going to listen to them. He's going to obey them. He's going to act on them. I just don't want that to skate past us. It's one thing to say that you love God and that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It's another thing entirely when the rubber hits the road and it's time to obey to do it. So he's a man open to God's leading. He's a man lodging with a, in a forbidden home, right? It's, it's thought by many scholars that staying with the, in the home of Simon the Tanner could have been provocative or controversial because tanners touch, un, you know, they make leather and they touch carcasses and that's an unclean thing to the Jew. Um, and so uh, Peter seems to be already uh, opening up to the idea that this gospel message has to go out beyond the borders of just Israel and, and even into places that were forbidden before. And also, he's a man who's hospitable to the Gentiles, right? He, inv he invited the delegation in to be their guests, it says. And again, if you fast forward to verse 28, it says, it says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. 
So against, against his impulses as a follower of the Old Testament law, when God revealed himself to him in this vision and told him what to do, he did it. And he opened his home. Uh, to, we, well, it wasn't his home. Simon the Tanner's home. He allowed them in and practiced hospitality. Interesting, just an interesting uh, observation on this too. We'll take a, a sidetrack on this. Inviting someone into your home is a very powerful thing, right? Inviting someone into your personal space to converse, to have a meal, to enjoy a board game or, or some sort of leisure activity and just talk about life is a very uh, powerful thing. I don't know if you know the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield was let's just say in her old life was the complete opposite of us, right? She was a you know, person that represented the, the, the very left, left, left leanings of politics. She was a Syracuse professor. Sorry, Steve Cobal. She was a, a Syracuse, Steve likes Syracuse. She was a Syracuse professor in a same-sex relationship, right? Very, very um, resistant to and not very open to what the Bible has to say at all. And someone down the street from her, I, I believe if I've got her testimony right, it's a pastor and his wife invited she and her partner into their home for a meal and just practiced the idea of, I'm going to get to know you. I'm just going to be hospitable and I'm going to get to know you and I'm going to let you get to know me and we're going to dwell together in this community. They lived in the same subdivision, I think. And, and you know, just be friendly, be warm. Uh, share a meal. And through that, she was so bothered by the fact that someone who's the polar opposite of her in every single way would invite her in and show her this kind of kindness that eventually uh, she uh, took their invitation to come to church with them. And that must have been a shock to her system. Uh, I think in her testimony, she relates the fact that the, one of the things that was shocking to her system is she rolled up in the church parking lot and she saw a whole bunch of homeschoolers and 15 passenger vans with kids just spilling out like crazy. And she's like, what is this freak show that I've gotten myself into, you know? But um, what she found there was love and acceptance, not of her sin. She found the truth. She was told the truth in love. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that she came to Christ. She rejected her former manner of life and I believe married and has a child at least, maybe more. Hospi hospitality is a very powerful thing and it occurs to me, and just as a reminder, 1 Timothy 3, one of the qualifications of a church leader is someone who's hospitable. And I think that's something that we could all benefit from and learn to grow in is having people into our homes both brothers and sisters in Christ and those who don't think like us for the purpose of just getting to know people and, and sharing life together and having the opportunity, should God provide it, to speak the truth. All right, let's talk about the thing that you all came here for today, which is Peter's vision. Peter's vision. Now, uh, this is to be real honest with you. Um, this vision is super perplexing to me. Um, and, and if I told you that I, I've read uh, some commentaries, many commentaries about what this vision means, 
Uh, here's what you need to know. When you see scholars out there casting about, like one guy says this and one person says that, and this person over here says this, about all the symbol- symbolism of what all this means and all this kind of stuff, you can bet your bottom dollar they don't know. But we don't have to know because Peter, in the section that we're going to cover next week, Peter is going to interpret the vision twice. So we're good. I don't know why God uses a sheet that's let down by its four corners on the earth and puts unclean animals in it, and somehow the unclean animals mean that now the gospel's open to the Gentiles. I don't know. But I know that Peter is going to help us to understand what that means, and he's going to tell us twice, and, uh, and so we can trust that that's what it means. But let's talk about the vision real quick. Just some things to point out in case you, you don't see it. The sheet is lowered from heaven to earth, meaning this is, you know, I think this is, giving us an indication that this is coming from God, right? The sheet uh, in the vision is lowered from heaven to earth. The sheet contained animals, and and it contained unclean animals according to the law. You can look up Leviticus 11 and other places, and it will talk very extensively about what animals Israelites were allowed to eat and what animals they were forbidden to eat. Now, I've heard, again, in the world of Christianity, biblical studies and all this kind of stuff, you'll hear scholars and they'll talk about, well, the unclean animals, uh, the reason that God probably forbade, forbade those is because they were less healthy or some other thing. They, didn't have, they couldn't process that animal back then. I, you know, whatever. I don't know what the answer is, but I, I, I do know the Old Testament law seems to be set up in such a way that every single decision that one makes in life is designed to get you to contemplate the following thing. What would God have me do? What would God have me not do? And so God designed the law to to help his people consider him in all facets of life, even what they put in their mouths to eat. And so he declared some of them to be clean. You can eat these. And some of these to be unclean. You cannot eat these. And that's very much what the law is like. Everything that you did, when you, you know, this past week I had poison, I'm still recovering, but I had poison ivy. There were rules for when you got blemishes on your skin and what you would do and how long you would be unclean and when you would present yourself to the priest and when the priest would say, you're good to go back into the community now and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so, we also see in the vision that God has said that he, he has done something. He has made the unclean clean. How did he do that? How does God take that which he has described as unclean? And we we know from the future of what's coming up that he's talking about the Gentiles. How has he made the non-Jewish people to be clean? And we know the answer to that question. It's because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Not just sufficient to clean the Jew, to forgive the sin of the Jew, to make the Jew right before God, but also the Gentile. The Bible is clear about that over and over again. The New Testament is clear about that over and over again. Again, back to verse 48. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. God has done this thing, not Peter. God has done this thing. God is bringing together Peter and Cornelius to help us to see it, to see what he's done, to open the door 
of salvation to the Gentiles. And it was repeated three times. Uh, that's just right there in the text. Uh, you know, typically when something's repeated numerous times, it's there for emphasis. It's there to make sure that it's, it's hunkered in the, into our thoughts, that it, that it really happened, and that um, it's true. Now, again, the interpretation of this vision that Peter has is strange to me. I don't get it. But in the coming passages, Peter's going to explain twice that his vision signals the opening of the gospel to the Gentiles. And I'm reminded of something else that Peter wrote as I think about this, which is 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Here's why I bring up this passage. Before I read it, here's why I bring it up. If you haven't noticed this tactic yet, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow your minds a little bit. Maybe not blow your minds a little bit, but at least equip you with some truth that you need as you operate your life. False teachers that exist in the quote-unquote wider church today, false teachers make their bones, make their hay. They convince a lot of people that untrue things are true by finding obscure passages of Scripture in the Bible, whether they be in the Old Testament or New Testament, and freighting those passages with all kinds of imagery and thoughts and and. This crazy idea is that this means this, and this means this, and I know because God told me, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And freighting those past, those obscure passages with all kind of meaning that's not in the text, and then pushing at you and say, believe this. And sometimes how they get away with it, how they get away with it is the, 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 trans, the interpretation they come up with is something that's very, very appealing to our flesh. And so we're like, oh yeah, I want to believe that. False teachers do this all the time. This passage is an obscure passage. This vision of Peter with the sheet and everything is an obscure passage. But I want to remind you that Peter himself is going to tell us what it means twice in short order. And so I point you to 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone, someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have the vision. It's weird, granted. We have what Peter says the vision means twice. Let's just accept it as that, at that. It's that simple. So when somebody comes along to you and says, well, let me tell you the secret meaning. This sounds like uh, clickbait on a YouTube video, right? The secret meaning of Peter's vision about the sheet. It happens all the time. I mean... I get disgusted and throw up in my mouth when I get on social media and see all this clickbait about false teaching in the Bible. So, just know this, right? A lot of that stuff is just garbage. Don't pay attention to it. We have the vision. We have the interpretation. That's what it means. Now, again, my emphasis this morning is who? Who is God using to bring these two worlds together? Who is God using to allow the Gentiles into official, bona fide status before God? To be considered the same. Their, their souls were bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, just as Jewish believers were. Who is God using to do that? The answer is God uses people who fear him, who are open to his leading, and put their faith into action. God uses people who fear him, are open to his leading, and put their faith into action. And we see that on display in Cornelius, the Gentile, and Peter, the Jewish apostle of Jesus Christ. 
So this begs for, this begs for some self-examination, doesn't it? Are you a Christian in name only? Are you a Christian because that's what you profess yourself to be? Or are you a, a Christian who is on a quest, on a pursuit to grow and change, become more like Christ? More yielded to what God has said today than you were yesterday. Rooting out the sin that remains in your life actively. Not just sitting around waiting for God to zap you. Not letting your reputation just kind of be whatever it is, but being intentional about how you respond to people and how you act out in public, within the body, you get the idea. There's nothing more destructive than to the body of Christ than somebody you know, who says they're a believer and then goes out and <laughs> just wreaks destruction in the community and builds a reputation of what a terrible human being. Oh, they go to Delaware Bible Church. So my question uh, by way of application is this, what direction is your life going, right? Are you growing and changing, becoming more like Christ? Are you status quo? That's unfortunately, I think the status of many these days is just go along to get along status quo, not really intentional about things. I think that's a recipe for disaster. Or are you being sucked under by the force of the power of sin that remains in your life? Uh, get help if that is the case. So do some self-examination, right? And then are you developing your character, right, to be used in the ministry of reconciliation? We have a message that we carry, that God has given us. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that we are all sinners, that every single one of us deserve death and hell but that God has sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins, yes, but also to give us, to take up residence in our life in the person of the Holy Spirit, to give us his word so that we can grow and change and to invite us into a life that is so much different than what our flesh wants to live. A life of loving God and loving others, right? I'm going to say something, I got like, three minutes left. I'm going to say something that could be controversial, and I invite you to come and talk to me after the, the message is over. But in, in our world today, it, it's, I don't think it's any, I don't think it's any secret or whatever that, that people continue to talk about the mental health crisis that the world is facing. And they talk about the after effects of COVID, and they talk about isolation, and they talk about a great many things leading to a mental health crisis. And, I, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep saying this until somebody proves me wrong, but I believe that one of the reasons that we're suffering from what the world would call a mental health crisis, I think that the Bible might call it, you know, um, you know being downcast. Uh, there's, there's a whole different bunch of words that are used in the Bible. Despair. Is that the world has set its feet at living for self. And we were not designed by God to do that. That's not the way this life was designed to work. The way that God designed us and the way that God designed us, not just individually, but to operate in a corporate, corporate setting and in a, in a community, is to, to get our understanding of life and truth from God and to worship him, love God, and to let that overflow in our lives and selflessly dedicating ourselves to ministering to our spouses, to our families, to our churches and to our communities, love others. 
And as we do that, as we kind of forget about ourselves and as we pour ourselves into other people, will it be easy? No, it's going to be hard. It's going to be exhausting. And it's going to be contrary to what the flesh wants. But I would invite you uh, to, if you understand life any way the way I do, is that's the way of joy and peace. To lay your head on the pillow at the end of, the, of a hard day and say, today I loved God. And I let that love of God work its way out in my hands and feet, out of my mouth, out of my pocketbook, and how I loved others. That's true life. Uh, dare I say it? Uh, that's living. And uh, there's, a, there's a fellow that was here before me, uh, and he's been with the Lord a long, a long time. I, I've only seen him in videos, and I think his name was Shoff Darty, and he was famous around here for saying all this in heaven too. This is living. If we will understand that that's way, the way we're designed, that to the degree that we pursue selfishness, to the degree that we pursue self, it's a dead-end road and it leads to nothing but trouble. Your email, uh, Scott TD at gmail.com if you have comments on that. I'm just teasing. All right. 2 Corinthians 5.18. All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We carry the gospel message with us we're going to lead with our reputation. We're going to lead with our kindness. We're going to lead with our love towards other people. And once we build a reputation with them, we're going to have the opportunity, we're going to earn the opportunity to share the good news with them. Let's do that. Father in heaven, we thank you for this, this great and beautiful day. Thank you for the rain that waters the earth and nourishes the crops. We pray that you would uh, help us to see the character qualities that are inherent in Cornelius and Peter and strive to develop those in ourselves. Father, you've given us your word. You've told us what to do. You've imbued us with your Holy Spirit. Uh, if we are followers of yours, let us not be Christians in name only, but in, in our deeds, in our actions, in, our, uh, in, in retooling our desires to want what you want. May we build a reputation of love and good deeds that provides an entryway into numerous lives for the purpose of sharing the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. And for those that don't, have, have not yet made the decision to follow you through your son, Jesus Christ, I pray that they would uh, come and talk to me and, and make, that, make that decision for their good, for your glory, for their soul in all eternity, secure and safe when kept by Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.